You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. A predatory loan app is discovered embedded in mobile apps. Facebook phishing? GPS disruptions are reported in Russian cities. NSA warns against dismissing Russian offensive cyber capabilities. Farewell, Shah one Kevin McGee from Microsoft looks at cyber signals. Our guest is Jason Witte of USAA to discuss the growing risk from quantum computing. And welcome to the world, Leviathans. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, December 16th, 2022. Zimperium has found a novel predatory loan application, Moneymonger, embedded in mobile apps developed with Flutter. It's found in apps sold through third-party stores. Moneymonger collects a large amount of personal information from its victims and then uses that information in what Zimperium describes as multiple layers of social engineering, ultimately seeking to extort even more money from the marks than the original conditions of their predatory loans themselves. Zimperium concludes that the code they've discovered forms part of a more extensive predatory loan malware campaign previously discovered by K7 Security Labs. So, predatory lending is bad enough, but in this case, the criminals seek to enmesh the victims in a tangle of threats, pressure, and further extortion with some data theft on the side. Researchers at Trustwave have observed a phishing campaign that informs recipients that their Facebook account will be locked within 48 hours for a copyright violation. The phishing emails themselves are very poorly written, but they contain a link to a fairly convincing Facebook post. The researchers write, Instead of the usual phishing link to an external landing page, this mail sample is crafted with a link that points to an actual Facebook post. The content of this Facebook post appears legitimate because it uses a dummy page support profile with the Facebook logo as its display picture. 
At first glance, the page looks legitimate, but the link provided in this post leads to an external domain. The link in the Facebook post leads to a spoofed version of Facebook's appeals page hosted on a domain that impersonates Facebook's parent company, Meta. Once you're there, thinking you're about to get your account unlocked, you'll be asked to enter some information. The Trustwave researchers explain, Upon clicking the Send button, any information entered in the form by unsuspecting victims will be sent to the cybercriminals, along with the victim's client IP and geolocation information. Inspecting the source code reveals a link to a JavaScript file, which contains the function that will retrieve any information provided to its form when triggered. After the victims enter their information, they'll be redirected to Facebook's real website, possibly none the wiser. Trustwave concludes, These fake Facebook violation notifications use real Facebook pages to redirect to external phishing sites. Users are advised to be extra careful when receiving false violation notifications and not to be fooled by the apparent legitimacy of the initial links. Wired reports that GPS signals are being jammed in some Russian cities. Russian electronic warfare operations have periodically disrupted GPS during the present war. The motive in this case may be interference with GPS-guided Ukrainian drones and missiles that have recently struck military targets inside Russia. It's now become a commonplace and correct observation that Russian cyber operations have fallen far short of pre-war expectations. But U.S. NSA Cybersecurity Director Rob Joyce warns against complacency. CyberScoop quotes him as saying during a press briefing on the release of NSA's 2022 retrospective, I would not encourage anyone to be complacent or be unconcerned about the threats to the energy sector globally. As the war progresses, there's certainly the opportunities for increasing pressure on Russia at the tactical level, which is going to cause them to reevaluate, try different strategies to extricate themselves. So, listen to Mr. Joyce and don't get cocky, kid. The mention of the energy sector is significant, as it had been expected to be a principal target of Russian cyber operators. They had shown the ability to interrupt service across portions of the Ukrainian grid in 2015 and 2016, but those cyber attacks haven't been reprised in the present war. This isn't due to any tenderness about civilian suffering or indiscriminate targeting either, as the drumfire of Russian missile strikes demonstrates. Some of the failure of Russian cyber operators to show up is certainly due to effective Ukrainian defense, but a complete explanation remains a matter for speculation. The report that cybersecurity director Joyce was introducing also outlined the support NSA has rendered over the course of 2022 to defensive operations prompted by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The NSA Cybersecurity Year in Review report summarizes, As Russia invaded Ukraine in early 2022 and the U.S. held Russia accountable, Intelligence indicated that the Russian government was exploring options for potential cyber attacks against the U.S., including its critical infrastructure sectors. NSA, CISA, and FBI issued cybersecurity advisories in January, February, and April to heighten awareness of the threat and promote understanding of Russian state-sponsored and cybercriminal tactics, techniques, and procedures so that net defenders could strengthen their defenses. Through operational collaboration with defense industrial-based companies and their service providers, 
NSA's Cybersecurity Collaboration Center played a leading role in protecting key critical infrastructure sectors. The CCC conducted more than 2,000 bidirectional exchanges in the first four months of 2022, sharing NSA's insights, actionable information on Russian cyber TTPs, and building a more fulsome intelligence picture with industry's help. Throughout the conflict in Ukraine, NSA has provided foreign signals intelligence insights that have aided U.S. government leaders, NATO, and the U.S. European Command. It has also provided cryptographic security products to meet unplanned emergency requirements and to support urgent missions. It has rapidly deployed more than 150 communication security devices to support mission operations during the global crisis. It is so long at last to SHA-1. NIST urges those who still use it to move away from the venerable SHA-1 encryption algorithm in service since 1995. They state the SHA-1 algorithm, one of the first widely used methods of protecting electronic information, has reached the end of its useful life, according to security experts at NIST. The agency is now recommending that IT professionals replace SHA-1 in the limited situations where it is still used with newer algorithms that are more secure, that is, with SHA-2 or SHA-3. SHA-1 has grown unacceptably vulnerable to collision attacks. Leaving SHA-1 will be a long goodbye. NIST explains that these things aren't done overnight, stating, Modules that still use SHA-1 after 2030 will not be permitted for purchase by the federal government. Companies have eight years to submit updated modules that no longer use SHA-1. Because there is often a backlog of submissions before a deadline, we recommend that developers submit their updated modules well in advance so that CMVP has time to respond. And finally, the U.S. Army has activated the 11th Cyber Battalion, the Leviathans, at Fort Gordon, Georgia, with official ceremonies welcoming the new organization held yesterday. Good luck and good hunting, Leviathans. Coming up after the break, Kevin McGee from Microsoft looks at cyber signals... Our guest is Jason Witte of USAA to discuss the growing risk from quantum computing. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. 
Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Quantum computing has the potential to greatly increase the speed and power of computers, and with that comes great promise as well as potential risk, particularly to encryption methods. Jason Witte is Chief Security Officer at Insurance and Banking Organization USAA, and I caught up with him for insights on being quantum ready. There are things that exist today already in terms of um, different quantum computing offerings that and uh, large-scale technology companies have today. But there's also what we predict is going to happen in the next 10 years, and that's where it gets really interesting and why we're talking about it now. Quantum computing certainly has the promise of delivering tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even tens of uh, millions of times more compute capacity than uh, classic computing environments have. So that can you know, really go to solving some really, really, really large challenges that we couldn't do with today's compute uh, environment. But also from a security standpoint, having that much compute uh, power at your fingertips roughly 10 years from now puts asymmetric um, cryptography at real risk of being decryptable at that time frame. And because we're using asymmetric uh, encryption in so many different things like SSL or TLS or just, you know, HTTPS in general, um, all of that traffic being hoovered up by, you know, military intelligence in several countries um, for the purpose of being able to decrypt that 10 years from now is, is certainly, you know, a concern. So that's, that's why I think we're, we're talking about that now. And there's a lot, a lot to unpack there. And, and where do we stand in terms of having confidence in the timeline with the, the research that we're seeing, the announcements we've seen made? Where do we stand there? Yeah, it's really a good question. The One of the things that happened five years ago was that there was a prediction that it would take about five years for there to be quantum parity. So being able to calculate, um, you know, using a quantum computer, the same thing that you could do with a, a regular Klexa uh, computer. And so if that was five years ago, that actually happened about three years ago. So it was, it was greatly accelerated to have this predict, prediction that it was going to take five years and actually took two. Similarly, um, for a very narrow uh, scope, quantum superiority, where you can actually calculate the things faster using a quantum computer than a classic one, was predicted to be several years after that. And it actually happened the same year. So I would say our ability to predict where this technology is going has been kind of, you know, not a whole lot of um, confidence in terms of, is it really like a decade from now or is it two decades from now or is it like a year from now? However, what I would say is that we generally are stating that quantum things are going to happen 
in the five to 10 to 20 year timeframe. And we're generally seeing that those things are happening faster than most of the predictions. But across the scientific community, having uh, quantum computers at the level where they can actually break asymmetric encryption, there is general consensus right now that that problem is about 10 to 12 years from now. And because it's 10 to 12 years from now, we should be very thoughtful about what does that mean for the next five years in terms of um, new algorithms coming online that are uh, in the post-quantum encryption environment, PQE. We will then need to understand where do we have traditional algorithms and inventory all of those you know, traditional algorithms, then plan on replacing them with these post-quantum encryption algorithms. And then how long is that rollout going to take? And is that going to be able to be done by the time, um, you know, the threat uh, landscape around quantum changes? What is your sense in terms of urgency for, for folks who are responsible for security? To what degree should they be actively pursuing uh, solutions for their own environments? Yeah, so the National Institute of Standards and Technology has recently um, come up with a small number of uh, PQE replacement algorithms, post-quantum encryption replacement algorithms. So now it is um, really on all of us to make sure that we start in the inventorying phase to ensure that we have um, the ability to, you know, migrate to these new algorithms and we know where they're, you know, where they're in use today. Then there's the phase of actually doing the migration and then there is along that uh, same time frame, and let's just say for argument's sake that the inventory might take you two or three years and the migration might take you two or three years and you actually start the migration, you know, in parallel. Um, along that roughly six-year window, hypothetically, you also want to be able to decouple as much as possible the encryption and the decryption and the key management um, processes so that you have crypto agility, so that if you get to the end of that six-year uh, time frame, and now all of a sudden something's wrong with one of the algorithms, or there's some breakthrough that's happened, you have the ability to switch out again, and you have an agile way of doing your um, sort of key change or algorithm changes. Is there a hit that organizations could take in terms of performance, but by implementing some of these more advanced algorithms, or does the does the asymmetry mean that that's not so much of an issue? No, it could certainly be an issue. And, and the, whole, the whole thing with post-quantum encryption is it's, it is classically computed algorithms using classic computers that are more resistant to quantum computers attacking those algorithms. There's a lot of different theoretical algorithms that are out there today. They are all trying to balance the performance hit with the additional security that you get with, with the algorithm. But certainly that's part of the process is, is understanding, you know, where, where do you take that hit and can you horizontally scale to just deal with it? Um, or do you have to, you know, have bigger compute capacity um, on an individual server-by-server -server basis? That's Jason Witte from USAA. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear more, head on over to the CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you'll get access to this and many more extended interviews. 
joining me once again is Kevin McGee. He's the chief security officer at Microsoft Canada. Kevin, always great to welcome you back to the show. Um, You and your colleagues at Microsoft recently released a report. It's, uh, I believe, titled the Cyber Signals Digital Briefing. This is the second one you all have put out. Can we go through some of the highlights here from this report? Thanks, Dave. Uh, thanks for having me back. It's always great to, to chat with you. Um, this is a new quarterly research report. This is our second edition we've come out with, and we're taking a different approach. The the you know vendor report market's kind of crowded. Uh, we want to make sure we're adding value. So uh, this report's really focused, in my mind, on not listening to what's happening on the dark market and uh, on, on uh, chat boards and whatnot and sort of reporting and not focused for super highly technical. It's more like a signals intelligence report where we're listening to the 40, 40, 50, I'm not sure how many trillion signals we have at this point across our global platform. And we're building intelligence that can be shared with business leaders. So this is a report that you can share with the business leaders in your organization, with your senior executives, with your board of directors, to help them understand some of the challenges you are seeing in the marketplace. But it's not driven on sort of hearsay or you know uh, observations. It's driven on hard data uh, that we're seeing from our platform. So I think that's the unique place that we're we're trying to carve out um, in in educating uh, the vendor community and uh, and also our customer base. Can we dig into some of the specifics here? What are some of the things that caught your eye? Yeah, this one uh, is on uh, focused on um, ransomware, and it's entitled Extortion Economics, Ransomware's New Business Model. And and my read of it is really um, the days of the Ma and Pa sole provider hacking team is, is kind of done. We're seeing a professionalization and industrialization of the ransomware industry. And I often joke that you'll run into a hacker now and you know, the criminal markets, they don't want to be called a hacker. They want to be called an extortion engineer. I think that's the uh, that's the the phase of, of ransomware we're seeing going through. But what does that mean in real terms? Distributed networks, um, cybercrime is becoming a gig economy. There's a great deal of focus on innovation. We're seeing a move to subscription-based business models, uh, ransomware as a service, initial access brokers. You've covered a lot of this on, on the podcast, um, which it, you've seen more and more uh, evidence of this uh, in the marketplace. As well, we're also seeing adoption of affiliate marketing and multi-level marketing um, and human-operated approaches. They're running these more like businesses and distributed businesses, as opposed to sort of how we envision um, the traditional hacking um, team. And uh, it's it's a profound change in the business models, which presents some threats and it also presents some opportunities for us as well. Yeah, can we talk about some of those opportunities? I mean, are, what in your mind are the possibilities in terms of disruption? I think, you know, for the short term, it's going to get worse because they're evolving faster than we are. But what what is happening in the back end, and I hope I'm proven right in there, is in order to build these bigger markets where you're having less sophisticated people join affiliate networks and whatnot, you have to standardize and you have to build standard products and build, um, you know, things that are, are, are consistent um, because if you're providing ransomware as a service and you need to provide an upgrade, you're now acting like a software vendor as a cyber criminal and you need to run that business. So standardization means they're going to continue to use the same tactics. They may lower the tactics. They may make them easier and whatnot. As that continues, that gives us a chance to, when we defend, defend against a larger segment of these attacks. So short term, and I don't know what short term means in cybersecurity. It could be weeks. It could be years. Um, I think there will be more pain. But as we see them try and really build business models that are global and distributed, they're going to suffer the same challenges that any other business uh, faces. And that gives us as defenders a chance to find new ways to, to build defenses. 
Are you optimistic that we're we're on the right path here? That this is something that's achievable? Well, I have to be, Dave. Or I, I, would, be, <laughs> I, I, I would be able to, to do my job. Um, I, I want to think, you know, you are yes, after are, all Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and and I'm and I'm sorry, um, but uh, we we have to really look at um, capitalizing on on some of these uh, opportunities and thinking forward uh, of how we're going to address these these challenges. We're seeing the transition in in the cyber criminals from technical, highly technical operated attacks to more business email compromise, more focusing on the business. You know, that's something as an organization we can we can respond to. Um, our tech folks, when we were trying to talk to senior executives and whatnot about building defenses, they didn't understand our language. They understand the language of extortion. They understand the language of affiliate model ransomware. I think, again, as we standardize and as we see uh, cyber criminals become more like a business, the private sector, who's pretty good at business and competition, will eventually be much better equipped and will be able to harness the entire resources of the organization at layer nine, as Bruce Schneider would say, to to sort of uh, combat and, and defend against some of these attacks. So I am optimistic. I do think we'll go through some pain and a lot more of it till we get there. Um, but eventually, um, every every time there's a new technological advance, the attacker-defender balance shifts. Eventually, I believe it will come back into uh, into our favor. Yeah, I, I can't help wondering if, you know, as, as you say, that the professionalism continues here, but I don't think it's ever going to go away completely, but I wonder if we might reach a point where it exists mostly at the nuisance level, where it's not an existential threat to your business. It's just uh, one of many risks that you have to plan for, but uh, it can be dealt with. And I think that's where it was, you know, a bespoke, you know, one-off type of highly creative um, hackers in a, in a very immature market that didn't know how to deal with it. Now we're having a more commoditized say, uh, attack approach, a more institutionalized approach to cybercrime. We're getting every year more of an understanding and integrating into resilience, not just security on the business side. So I think you're right. At some point, uh, it will become uh, a cost of doing business and we will understand how to, to deal with that. Uh, that's going to take time. That's going to take education. That's going to take really the integration of cybersecurity to be operized. Uh, operationalized throughout the organization, not just still in the tech department. And in, in my career, I've really seen that change. I mean, there was, you know, maybe 5, 10, 20 of us in the industry, it seemed, uh, when I got started a few years ago. And uh, now, you know, everyone's talking about uh, cybersecurity in all aspects of the business. And if you told me that that would have happened so quickly as it did, I, I would have been surprised 10 years ago to hear you say that. So, I, again, I'm optimistic. I think when we're in the trenches and we're fighting it every day, it can seem like like it's never ending, mm. um, but I, I do see some uh, some light at the end of the tunnel, and, and hopefully it is, you know, as they proverbially say, not a train. That's right. All right. Well, Kevin McGee, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. 
Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out Research Saturday and my conversation with Orr Katz from Akamai. We're discussing highly sophisticated phishing scams and how they're abusing holiday sentiment. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brendan Karpf, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Maria Vermatsis, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Millie Lardy, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Catherine Murphy, Janine Daly, Jim Hoshite, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, Simone Petrella, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com cyberwire.